to the book of First Chronicles. And uh, as you should be well aware of by now, we have been focusing on helping you put the Bible together. We started our church a little over a year ago, started right in taking the core people that God gave us and began to build the New Testament principles, looking at the Bible doctrine that really helps you solidify and define and to build a relationship with the Lord. We don't put a lot of emphasis on a lot of frilly things here. We put the emphasis on you as a man or a woman saved, building your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and what all that entails. And after we got through that and we laid a good foundation of it, then we began to focus on the Bible itself. And I began to talk to you about how that we needed to lay a foundation as far as what the Bible is all about. So we started coming through each book of the Bible and we started coming through laying those books out, giving you the overall picture so that when we're done, you will have a, a composite, so to speak, of all that the Word of God is. That it gives you the ability to look at the Bible and understand what you've got instead of looking at it and wondering what you've got. And in the process of that, we're covering a lot of great practical material. Not only are we laying the Bible out for you as far as how it goes together, but we're also laying it out and showing you some of the great practical truths found in that book that are really life-changing principles. And so far, we have, the last couple of weeks, we have been in the book of, of, the, of the four kings. First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. And we've really focused not only just on the practical, but the thing that I wanted you to see and understand, that, that how this fits into the overall scheme in the Bible. Those four books of the kings are the heartbeat and the soul of Israel's history. As a nation of God's people, there's no greater time when God is dealing with them. In fact, everything in the Bible up to that point is to get them there. And everything from the Bible from that point on is to get them back where they need to be. In essence, the whole Bible, really, from a historical perspective, is built around these four books of the Bible. Maybe that's why they contain so much material. I don't know. Certainly, if... Those four books are incredible as far as giving you the understanding of things, not only historically and doctrinally, but inspirationally for our lives. And today we're going to enter into the book of Second Chronicles, and I want to I want to put First Chronicles I said First First Chronicles in perspective for you in our study. Now, First and Second Chronicles are not what I call orderly books. In other words, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings follow an order. 1 Samuel starts with Samuel, and then you run up through the life of David, the life of Solomon, and then into, into the other kings, the splitting of the kings, into Zedekiah, in the end of the book of 2 Kings. Those books are an orderly account. Those books run approximately four or five hundred years, how, however you count them. Now, 1 and 2 Chronicles does not go into that order. In other words, it isn't 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. That's not the way it works. 1 and 2 Chronicles are commentaries. They're running commentaries on those four books that you already have. And where First Chronicles is a commentary on basically First and Second Samuel with emphasis on Second Samuel, Second Chronicles is a picture uh, book that deals with a commentary on First and Second Kings. And that's why those books are supplementary material on, on, on those particular books. And why? You're going to see today uh, some great things about the, about the Word of God and about God in your life. 
Now, the breakdown, and I've given you a breakdown of every one of these books, is really simple. In fact, it, is, it really sets the stage for what we're going to study today. But in chapter 1 through chapter 9 in the book of 1 Chronicles, it deals with the line of David. Line, the lineage. David's line as it comes through the Bible. It shows his genealogy from Adam. And it brings you and it shows you as you come through that genealogy, very carefully shows you his connection with a messianic line. Now the messianic line in the Bible would be the line of Christ. And it shows you very clearly how that David is in that line and that his line is the kingly line. And uh, this is why Christ called himself the son of David. In reference to that line. Many times people say, well, why would Christ call himself the son of David when uh, he really wasn't the son of David? But in the kingly line, in the messianic line, he is. And that's why you find the first nine chapters are devoted to the kingly line, showing Israel's claim to the throne and showing David in that line. Now, this is very important, as we'll see in a little while here as we get on talk about some other things here. All right, then in chapter 10 and in chapter 29, through chapter 29, we deal with the life of David. I don't know of another book. I don't know of another book that more impacts your life and my life as far as a believer is concerned than the book of 1 Chronicles. And there's a number of reasons for that. And I want to try to cover the basis today, but I understand before, and I need to tell you something today, before I even get into this thing. I feel so inadequate this morning in preaching what I'm preaching. There are so much material here, and I understand if there's any book in the Bible that will literally change your life. I've told you this before. I've told you that there comes a time in your life when you get saved and you begin to grow. And as you begin to grow you begin to understand some things about the Bible, God, yourself, why God saved you, and you begin to learn some things about what God wants you to do. Now, some people learn it slower than others. Some people never get it. In fact, most of God's people never get it. And there are some reasons for that. But I need to say this to you today. When you come to the place in your life, when you understand the book of First Chronicles, and you see what the book of 1 Chronicles leads you to. And the book of 1 Chronicles and everything in it leads you to the last two chapters. And if there's ever a place in the Bible where your life will be changed, it will be changed when you understand the last two chapters of the book of 1 Chronicles. Now, I'm not such a fool today to think that everybody that hears this message is going to leave here with their life changed. I would like that to happen. Because if you're ever going to fulfill what God wants you to fulfill, and if you're certainly ever going to find out what your destiny is and what God has for you, and why God saved you, if you're ever going to put it all into perspective for you, so you get yourself out of the way and you see what God wants you to do, it's, it will never be till you understand this great book. And I would wish that that would be the way that it is today, but I know that's not going to happen. <clears throat> And I know that's not going to happen. One of the reasons is because of my inadequacy. It's hard for a human man, any human man, to preach when I need to preach today. It is so incredibly hard and, and to try to take the concepts 
and, and, and put them into your lap where you leave here and you see it. And maybe all that I can do today, maybe all I can do today is spark that fire. Maybe all I can do today is show you at the place that in your own time, you'll come to the point where your life too will be changed. Now, as God's people, <clears throat> here's our biggest problem. And this is my problem too. I don't preach you, I preach we. And this is my problem too. You know what our problem is? We all think we are spiritual, more spiritual than we really are. Now that is a fight, thing we've got to fight all of our lives. Because we get doing things for God, and we get experiencing things for God, and we think that we have arrived when in actuality we're not even at the station. And the process is, when we get to that point that we really think we're on fire for God and we're doing what we want to do, we're really not. And the more you think that way, then the farther you turn and go from God. Because the bottom line is, let me tell you something, is that none of us have arrived. Now, you're going to think this morning that I spent a lot of time on this message this week. And you're going to wonder to yourself as you leave today, my, my. He is one of the greatest Bible preachers, teachers I have ever heard. And you may be right in that to some degree. But let me tell you why this thing is so easy for me to preach the way i got to preach it today. It's because I preach this message to myself at least five times a week. If there's any place in the Bible that I stay, no matter what else I'm studying, no matter what else I'm doing, if there's any constant thought pattern in my life about my relationship with God, it will be in the message that I'm going to give you today that is going to be so inadequate. There are experiences in my life that I would like to tell you about. There are things in the Bible that I know that I would like to preach to you, but I don't. And the reason I don't is because I know if I did, I would stumble, bumble around up here like a fool and never convey the message because it is so personal and so real in my life and so unbelievably God that I don't know how to put it into human words. And this is one of these messages. So let us turn our attention to the Lord this morning and ask God, if it is infinite knowledge and wisdom through the Holy Spirit of God, to take the feeble task of this servant unworthy as I am, and try to make heads or tails out of it in our own lives, that you may leave here today with maybe not your life changed, though that would be my prayer, but certainly understanding that when you are ready in your Christian life for change, that you know where to go and what to do to make it in effect. Father, we thank you today and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And I love you so much today, Father, and I feel so inadequate as I stand here today. I have so much that I need to say. And Lord, I don't even know where to begin to say it. Lord, I have so much emotion up in my heart today, and yet I'm not preaching on emotion. I'm preaching your word, but it infects me. Because I know what lies in this great book, and I know how this book will change our lives to the point where we will never be the same again. I know, Father, that all thoughts, process, concepts of being like Christ, spiritual maturity, and all the things we like to throw around of presenting ourselves where God wants us to be go absolutely out the window. And yet, Lord, at the end of this message this morning, everybody will leave here knowing full well what God looks as as spiritual maturity, that we'll never be able to play that false game again that we'll understand exactly where we're at with the Lord and what God looks for. Lord, strip away everything today. 
We throw words around like ministry. We throw words around like commitment. We throw words around, Father. God, just take all those things away from us today and allow us to see this from your standpoint, to see what God has for us. And Lord, we'll be careful and thank you and praise you. Help me, Lord. Help me not to stumble today in my sake. Help me not to help to keep my thoughts clear. Help me, Father, to try to juggle this great book into some fashion that, Father, that you can use it profitable in my people's lives today in my own life. And, Lord, you know, they know, and, Lord, I certainly know that I never preach to them. I preach to me. There's never a time that I preach to anybody without preaching to me first because I need it worse than anybody. And, Lord, help us to come to your throne today and to simply sit there and be taught by our Heavenly Father like little children are at His feet. And we'll thank and praise in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Two men in the Bible. Two men in the Bible that typify Christ in a procedure that you need to understand. Two men. Two men in the Bible that are absolutely, you have to get down. One of them is Joseph, and the other one is David. Joseph, which is found in the book of Genesis, is a great type of the Christ. In fact, he is the greatest type of Christ when you want to study the work of Christ. Because in his life, you will see very clearly the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Joseph is a type of Christ in over 152 particulars. As to the work of Christ, what Christ was doing, first coming, second coming, all the aspects dealing with his brethren, it deals with the work of Christ in an unparalleled way. Now, when you come to David, he's the second man. David's doesn't emphasis, his emphasis is not on the work of Christ. His emphasis is on, the, is on the heart of Christ. If you want to study the work of Christ, study Joseph. If you want to study the heart of Christ, study David. Because it's David, the Bible says, that was a man after God's own heart. And if you want to study it and lay it out from that aspect, that's the way you've got to do it. Now, I told you, chapter 1 through chapter 9 deals with the line of David. Chapter 10 through chapter 29 deals with the life of David. In other words, once he showed you his line, now he's going to show you his life. And his life will form for us the character and the heart and the personality of Christ. Just as you study Joseph, you will find out the personality and the work of Christ. When you study the life of David, you will find out the character, the heart, and the personality of Christ. Now the Bible shows us clearly why David's relationship with God was so personal. It lays out for us all of the concepts that you could ever want, ever ask for, in building your own relationship. So in the book of Second, uh, First Chronicles, in the book of First Chronicles, when we're studying the life of David, you will not find any of David's sins listed. You won't find one bad thing said about David. There isn't one sin laid to David's charge in the book of First Chronicles. Now you go to Second Samuel, and then you see David as the man. Here you come and you see David as the great type of Christ. A couple of reasons for that. Old nature and new nature. Those two books sit for us before you ever get to the New Testament, showing you the old nature of man and the new nature of man. We've talked about it over before, standing in state. The second thing you need to look at and understand is this is that David, uh, God never brought up David's sins in 1 in uh, Chronicles, and there's a great principle for that. 
You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how that, when we studied the life of David in 2 Samuel, we talked about how that people like to focus on the sins of other people. And they like to focus all the time on the sins of what somebody else does, so they don't have to focus on their own. And in doing so, they write their own self a free pass, because they focus and identify and constantly are throwing up the sins of somebody else, and in that they live uh, and never deal with their own sins. And that's the game. We saw in Psalms 89 and Isaiah 55, I think it was, we talked about in there, where it talked about the sure mercies of David. Now here's what you've got. In 2 Samuel, God lays out his sins. In 1 Chronicles, God says nothing about his sins. The reason being, and it brings up a great principle, God dealt with David and his sin in 2 Samuel. And when God dealt with him, God to David, over his sin, when he wrote the book of 1 Chronicles, he never brought his sins up again. You know why? Because once God deals with you on your sin, and once God deals with you and you either confess it or God chastises you, whatever the case. But once God deals with you on your sin, God not only forgives your sin, He forgets your sin. And that is one of the greatest principles found anywhere in the Word of God. That's why He mentions them in 2 Samuel. He doesn't mention them in 1 Chronicles because once God deals with you, God forgives you and God forgets. And my, 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 what a great principle that is. And that's why there's no mention of David's sin in 1 Samuel. Chronicles, because when God deals with you and I on our sin, God never brings it up again. The Bible says He puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. And that's where it lies. So we see that the line and the life. So as we begin to come through these great chapters here this morning, and I want to talk to you about some of these things, and I want to move along as quickly as I can this morning, because I'm going to camp on chapter 28 and 29 for a little while this morning. All right, chapter 1 through chapter 9, it deals with the hundreds of names in David's genealogy. And I know we all hate to read genealogy. There's nothing more boring in the world than to read a bimbagabagada, habahabana, habagabagada, shippashabana, shippagabagada, whoever this guy was, and on down through life you go. But there are some reasons for that in the Bible. And in the first, couple of, first chapter, we see this. Chapter 1, verse 5, we see the genealogy of the sons of Japheth. Chapter 1, verse 8, we see the sons of Ham. Chapter 1 through 17, we see the sons of Shem. In other words, we begin to see it come from Adam to Noah, and then it breaks down with the three boys, and we watch the line come through. And from chapter 1, verse 17, it starts with Shem. Shem runs down David's line until it comes to Abraham in verse 27. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about the sons of Israel. That's Jacob. But notice how he doesn't use the word Jacob. He uses the word, he uses the word Israel because God's dealing with a nation here. In chapter 3, he shows you David's sons. And in chapter 4 through 9, he lays out the genealogies of the 12 tribes. Now, all this is very important. And I know that most people don't think that genealogy is important. But let me tell you what you got here. When those Jews go into captivity, like we saw last week, the Bible says that they are scattered throughout the whole world. There's never again till God brings them back in the tribulation period where the nation of Israel is anything. And in the process of that captivity, the 12 tribes get lost. Nobody today knows who the 12 tribes are. I don't care who you read. I don't care what Jewish man you talk to who claims to be from whatever tribe. Nobody, listen to me, nobody today knows where the 12 tribes are. They are lost. They have been lost since the times that the Gentiles came in in 606 B.C. And nobody today knows where they are at. 
I don't care who you read. I don't care who you listen to. I don't care who you have speak or stand up and say, well, this is so-and-so and he's of this tribe. If he's of that tribe, it's by totally accident that he knows it because nobody can trace their genealogy line back because of the great captivity and God fixed it that way. Now, why did he fix it that way? Well, for one of the reasons he fixed it for us. You know that every preacher in this city today is preaching probably out of a Bible that has nothing to do with your King James Bible. And he's got a Bible that has been corrected by a thing called the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is a Greek Old Testament. And it's an Old Testament written in Greek that they, that they found, that they say was written in 250 B.C. And that Greek, uh, that Greek Old Testament is a book by which they have taken now and altered all the new Bibles. And now when they write the new Bibles, they rely heavenly on the Septuagint. You'll hardly find a preacher in this city that doesn't get up and make some reference in his sermon or in his teaching to the LXX, the Septuagint. Now, we as Bible believers, this is where the Bible was profitable for you. How do we know that the Septuagint is about as reliable as a note to Santa Claus from Martin Luther King in 4004 B.C. How do we know that? Let me tell you, it's real simple. The Bible's not hard. You know how? Because in the writing of the Septuagint, they claim the Septuagint was written by 70 men, six men from each tribe of the nation of Israel. Right off the bat, I have two things in my Bible that tells me that it's bogus. One, the Bible, from beginning to end, has told me that there's only one tribe that is a scribal tribe. Only one. So anything written by all twelve would be phony. Second of all, who in the world in 250 B.C. knew where the twelve tribes were? Nobody did. Now I'm telling you, this is how these things help you out. Now, why does he put the genealogies in there? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in the tribulation period, the Jew is going to have to get back and he is going to have to make some sacrifices, and he's going to have to atone for some things that's laid out in the Old Testament for his killing of Christ. And for him to do that, he is going to have to have not only the priesthood, but the 144,000 that are sealed to preach come from each tribe, 12,000 from each tribe. He is going to have to find out by the time of the tribulation period where those 12 tribes are and where the priestly tribe is for him to fulfill everything for the second coming of Christ. How is he going to do that? He's going to do it by the genealogies that are found in your Bible. Those genealogies will lead him right up to the captivity. We already know in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, John and Daniel were told to seal up some things, not to write them. And the reason why that is because God does not want to reveal those genealogies yet, but there's coming a time in the tribulation period where they already have in the old Masoretic text, the Old Testament, what's there in the genealogies. God will give the missing parts, and they will find the twelve tribes, they will find the priestly tribe, and they'll offer the sacrifices. Second coming of Christ takes place. That's why. That's why. So that's what you've got in the first nine chapters. Now when we start in chapter 10, I'm done with that now. When we start in chapter 10, we pick up the story of the life of David. The life of David is a running commentary, as I said, on 2 Samuel. And in chapter 10 through 29, we see the life of God's man David, and we also see the heart and the personality of Christ. In chapter 10, we see the death of Saul, which is the end of the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 13 and 14, we see why God killed Saul, because he didn't obey and keep the word of God. When we come to chapter 11, and I'm telling you, every chapter, and this is where my dilemma starts right now, so I might as well just grab a, get a grip 
and, 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 and deal with what I got to deal with. Because I'll tell you, I miss, my mind is flooding now. Uh, where I, uh, here we go. Chapter 11. The battle with the Jebusites. In chapter 11, you have the battle with the Jebusites for the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's going to come a time. And right now in our church, we're only a little over a year old. We are building maturity. We are building men and women. We are fine-tuning some. We are building others. We are laying the foundation in others' lives. But down the line someplace, God is going to open the floodgates, and we're going to have a lot of people to deal with. And at that particular point, I'm going to, I've already got some of you earmarked. I already have some of you earmarked for biblical counseling. And biblical counseling is not what you think it is, but that's beside the point. But some of you are going to be very valuable to me in sitting down with couples who are having marital problems, individuals who are having problems, whatever the case, and taking them through the Bible and working those things out. In biblical counseling, I won't send you to Minneth Meyer. I won't send you to Clyde Nerymind. I won't send you anywhere in the world. We won't go to focus on the family. We won't go on unfocus on the family. We won't go on the family completely out of focus. What we will do is go to the Bible. Because I'm telling you something. I've been counseling for 30 years. And I don't know of a counseling situation or a problem that I ever got into that you didn't learn how to deal with it by just 10 or 12 or 13, maybe 15 stories in the Bible. The battle of the Jebusites here in chapter 11 is a chapter in the Bible that shows you, if you ever get into counseling or maybe in your own personal life, it shows you how to break satanic strongholds. You say, what's a satanic stronghold? Anything in your life that has more power over you than God does. You see, when I say satanic uh, stronghold, you actually think drugs, booze, pornography. And I'm not saying those aren't satanic strongholds. But I'm telling you what, the satanic stronghold in your life could be your kids. The satanic stronghold in your life could be your job. It could be any number of things. Because here's the problem we face as God's people. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, it says that all things are lawful. And that's grace. In the New Testament, all things are lawful. But then he also says, just because they're lawful, it says not all things are expedient. In other words, the principle is this. Just because all things are lawful don't mean that you need to do everything you're allowed to do. And the reason for that is in the last part of the verse. He says all things are lawful, but he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. Now that's a great principle. And it's one that you'll use over and over and over again in dealing with people in their problems. A satanic stronghold is nothing more than in a Christian's life where something, no matter what it may be, has more power over them than God does. Something keeps them out in the world instead of being in the house of God. It can be your athletic program. It can be your soccer team. It can be your baseball team. It can be your little league team. It can be the race car. It can be anything. It can be fishing. It can be hunting. It can be whatever. Whatever in your life takes up your time that you are so committed to it that it runs you instead of you running it is a problem in your life. And you see, it comes back to that balance. And that's why the hardest thing in our lives is balance. And that's why the danger in the New Testament period of grace is the fact that all things are lawful. That you can really do anything. There's no law other than man's laws, but there's nothing that says you can't do this other than the clear places in the Bible. 
But in the places that are absolutely okay, when you get it out of balance, they begin to control you instead of you controlling them. And in this great chapter, we see the battle of the Jebuites for the city of Jerusalem. We see in chapter 11 how the devil gets a stronghold in your life and my life. We see no matter what it may be. And we see in that great book how to break it. How to take a man or a woman and take them in the Word of God and start with this chapter right here and show them the process that God takes any man, any woman, that it has anything in their life that's out of control and show them how to break that contact, break that strong point without ever giving them Prozac, without ever giving them anything that mind alters them to the place it just comes back to the pure, unadulterated Word of God showing you how that the biblical principles, putting your life in balance, will solve those kind of problems. Chapter 11 and chapter 12. We talked about this Thursday night a little bit. You have a great accounting of David's mighty men of valor. Men who by the love for God and David distinguished themselves in battles and became mighty men of valor. We talked about how there's a picture of Christianity today. How that in Christianity you have the average Christian. You don't have mighty men of valor. In David's time they had an army. But in that army there were men that did over and above, that went farther, that did more, uh, that were incredible feats that they did, not because they were great, but because the great God that they had personally in their lives. And we showed you how that it was a picture of what we need to have today. Very frankly, it's a picture of what I try to build today. I'm not interested in just building normal people. And I told you from the very get-go, this church will not be for everybody. We have a lot of people come in, they see it, they don't like it, and they leave. You know what? I understand that. My whole life it's been one, either you love me or you hate me. There ain't no middle ground with me. And you know what? It's the same way it is with God. Not to put myself in any comparison with God, but it's the same way it is with the Word of God. Not to put myself in comparison with the Word of God. But you know what? That's the way it is. You either love God or you hate God. You either love that book or you hate the book. And that's what it comes down to. I don't care what you simple say in your mindset, well, I kind of like God, or I kind of like the Bible, or I kind of like Bob. No, no. You either love the book or you hate the book. You either love God or you don't love Him. All this little playing around and this shoe sham stuff that we do in our lives is just smoke. And you're going to find that in the army of Israel, there was a group of men who stood head and shoulders above the rest. And they did greater things and the aspects we talked about it that they have, that we need to have, that we build, is courage, determination, and loyalty. And there's a lot of sidesteps to that that you can study. Those men were David's men that together in battle. They saw God come through. They did the impossible. They built a work for God. Every man before, uh, every man before God stood with David in the middle of that battle. Admiral Halsey said one time in his great biography called, uh, Lest We Forget, he said this, oh, no greater words were ever said. He says, in war, there's no extraordinary men, just common men who face with extraordinary circumstances do extraordinary things. Oh, and that's so true. You know why the devil gives you such a tough time? You know why the devil wants to take that book out of your hand? You know why everybody in this city would laugh at you and everybody in your friends will make fun of you and everybody in the whole wide world will make You know why? Because the devil knows greater than anybody in this world that the greatest danger on this planet, the greatest danger to the work of the devil on this planet is a common man with a common Bible in a common language. 
Oh, I'm telling you something. You better learn it. For every Whitfield, for every Luther, for every Billy Sunday, for every great man that we talk about today and we hold up in Christianity, there are 10,000 little guys out there and women and women who fight the fight every day that nobody ever hears about. And we hold these guys up as the great heroes of the faith when in actuality the great heroes of the faith are men and women just like you who never get any books told about them, that you will never use in illustrations of sermons, that your life is just day after day loving a God, loving a book, banding together and holding the ground till God comes back. That's David's mighty men of valor. Chapter 13 and 14. The death of Uzziah. And they are coming back in Jerusalem. We talked about this on anniversary Sunday. How that good intentions don't give you the right to violate biblical principles. What a great story that was. Then in chapter 15 and 16, we get a new name introduced into our Bible. In Genesis, or in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 19. We get a new name introduced in his name is Asaph. Now, I don't know if you know it or not. I'm going to enlighten you just a little bit this morning as we're watching our time here. Uh, I, I, I just want to enlighten you a bit this morning. Today is probably the most confusing time in the history of the church. Now, I know that you know that. And there's a number of ways that this world is confusing in Christianity. The Bible, the way men preach, or I should say the way men don't preach, but certainly one of the most controversial areas in all of the church is music. Now I must confess to you, <clears throat> I like all kinds of music. I don't really care. I told you before that your job as a Christian ought to be when that uh, you come to the Word of God and you learn the Word of God and you put the Word of God where you view everything in the Word of God. There isn't much in this life that you can't read now, you know what I'm talking about. There's things you just don't read, but there's things that are look at. No, things you don't put in your life. Don't use that as a license to go out and do what you want to do. But the things as far as the world, you ought to be able to learn from them because you run all that stuff through the book instead of around the book. Well, music is the same way. Music is the same way. And, I, I, and I'm just telling you, music in our, in our churches today is a, is, a, is, a, is a scary thing. Everybody's got their own idea on it. We think that, you know, we've got to have a contemporary style. Somebody else thinks, well, you know, it's the, it's the age that we live in that dictates the style. Somebody else says, well, you know, he says, uh, it's our culture. And it's very confusing. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to a young man uh, a couple of times about the Bible. He called me on the phone, and he's music director someplace, and, and he, he told me, he said, you know what? <clears throat> he says, it's, it's really hard. He says, what is, your, what is your idea on the thing about music? And he says, you know what, he says, we've got to, he says, you know, people don't like the old hymns anymore. And we live in a day and age where if you don't, I mean, and, and you've got some problems. Because I know churches today that have rock groups in there. I know churches when they get up to sing, if you closed your eyes, you might think you were in a, you were in a, in a casino in Las Vegas for the main show. They swoon, they walk, they talk, they, they talk about loving, in the name of Jesus is never mentioned. And, and, hey, and I'm an easy guy. I, I like all kinds. But you see, I studied history through the Bible, uh, music through the Bible and history. 
I know where music starts and where it stops. I know why we are the way we are today. I can go back and look at the Baruch period. I can look at this period. I can look at the naturalistic period. And I see how it develops down through history. So I have an advantage where I know why it is today. And because I know it, and because I somewhat have an idea about the Bible a little bit, those things don't bother me. I can enjoy anything. Now, there are certain things when I preach, I don't want sung before I preach. I don't want somebody cascading around up here like you're at a cocktail party for, you know, for the Democratic National Convention. You know, I don't want that. You say, well, how will I know? You'll know if I sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Have everybody stand up once you're done singing. You know you pulled a bad one. But you know what? I know that isn't trap happening here. You know why? I'll, tell, I'll, I'll come back to that. If I don't come back to that, wave at me. Okay? If I don't come back to that point. Because I'm really excited right now. When I get excited, I forget things. Asaph is the answer to that. Now, let me tell you something. If David is our model, if David is our model for our relationship with the Word of God, then Asaph is our model for our relationship for music. He was David's song leader. He was David's song leader. And yet, how many people, how many people get up and sing, entertain on a regular basis? I'm not talking about God's people who just get up and sing. But how many people just get up and, and they're, they're full-time Christian entertainers, they sing, and they have no idea. Why? They're just like a lot of preachers that get up and try to preach the Bible without understanding the model of the man in the Bible who loved the Bible better than anybody else, David. Well, to try to get up and sing and minister for a living without understanding the model for your ministry in music? Why, it's crazy. Guy said one time, well, you know what? Nobody likes the old hymns anymore. Nobody wants to sing them. And you know what? And I thought to myself, and I, I told him, I said, well, that's interesting. You know what? Those old hymns that you say nobody likes today, everybody liked them for 450 years. They never changed the one. You know when they started changing the new song and getting rid of the old ones? When they come out with a new Bible and get rid of the old one. Now, you put two and two together and see if you can get four out of it. Mr. College-educated smart man who knows what you're talking about. Okay, let's see if you can. Now, you know what the difference between those singers and our singers? You got the Word of God in your heart and you love it. You see, you don't have to be a great singer here. I even may sing someday. Pat, you gave me courage last week. I've always wanted to sing. And you last week, that was the first time you sang, wasn't it? And you know what? It was good, but you know what was better? Seeing your heart and your face because you were singing because you love a book. Sweetheart, look at me back here. You're the same way. You're the same way. Now I'm in trouble because I'm going to forget somebody that sang and I'm going to miss them and then, then they're going to be mad at me and they're going to leave the church. And I won't, Who else has sung in here? I don't want to miss many. Jeff, all of you people who sing. It's the difference. It's the difference. That's the difference. It's you're singing because of the Word of God in your heart. And you don't have to be good. Though you are. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to swoon back and forth and, and gesture and oh yeah and, and bring. No, you just stand here and you talk about God and what you, God has done in your heart comes out through your voice. Now the reason why music is a big deal. Now this is going to be strange for some of you. But the reason why music is the big deal and the devil uses music, 
other than the fact that music is a universal language and it speaks to our souls and to our hearts and it comes in and it forms the way our spirit goes. And we talked about the spirit and the soul and the flesh. It all connects together. But even beyond that, the reason why, and here it comes, the reason why, I know if you're listening to this tape, you'll shut it off now quickly. The reason why, the reason why it is is because the devil was the first music director in the first church service in the Bible. Now, I don't know if you know that or not, but you go back in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, and it talks about that the tablets and the pipes were in him in the day that he was created. And in Job chapter 37, verse 7, you find the first church service in the Bible when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And guess who's leading the music when that takes place? It is the one with the tablets and the pipes. And oh, and after the fall in Genesis chapter 4, verse 21, when Cain's line comes down, you'll find right smack dab in the middle of that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 21, in the devil's line, in Cain's line, two little guys, name of something for something, uh, who, who are proficient with the organ and the harp. That is tablets and pipes oh you see it so completely and Asaph solves all that Asaph was David's man I don't know if you know it or not he wrote you ten songs in your Bible I don't even know if you know that Asaph writes Psalm 73 to Psalms 83 they used to sing the Psalms that's why you have that little rest in there called Selah that is a musical phrase it means rest. Not only is he David's man, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 25, 1, 2 Chronicles 29, 30, talks about him. Not only is he David's man, he was David's chief man, because in 1 Chronicles 16, 4 and 5, David says, I made him the chief. Now, who is he? He's a singer. He's a musician that handles cymbals. I'm not a musician, I'm a pastor, who ha he handles cymbals, I handle imbeciles, but it's close. <laughs> but he's more than a vocal entertainer. The Bible says he's a seer, he's a prophet. And David uses him heavenly and makes him his chief because when he writes, he builds the Bible doctrine into what he sings. Somebody says, what's your standard for music? It's simple. It's Asaph. You say, well, you wouldn't, there's certain music you wouldn't allow. I like all kinds of music. And if you want to get up here and sing a little ditty, we can all laugh and have fun. I'm not a stick in the mud. I'm all for that. But I'm saying this. The predominant way is this. Do I not have fun with you? Do I not get up and joke and laugh? Sure. Do we not laugh? Do I not say stupid, stilly things and you laugh because you're stupider and stillier than the things that I said? Sure we do. But you know what the bottom line is? When I step into that pulpit, I give you Bible doctrine. Rule of thumb. Rule of thumb. Don't have, don't have more doctrine in your preaching than you have in your music. Your music should complement your preaching. And music should contain Bible doctrine in it, just like, just like the preaching does. If I got up here and flim-flammed around and gave you some mealy-mouthed message that talked about the love of man, the love of God, and the brotherhood of God, and the sweetheart of man, and talked about this thing and just brushed everything with a broad stroke, well, you'd throw me out of here so fast that you'd just say, Bob, what's wrong with you? You see, you don't expect that in preaching, but we can stand up here and let somebody put us into a passive state by your, oh, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What's it to you? <laughs> Doctrine. And I'm diverse. I don't ever get mad when somebody has fun singing something that may not be exactly, you know, I mean, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not a stick in the mud on the thing. 
But I know this. I know when it comes down to the hardline philosophy of music, we get our philosophy of loving God's book from David, and we need to get our philosophy for God's music from Asaph. Had a man one time I was sent down to interview about coming to be a music director at a large church. They asked me to go talk to him. He was a typical kid, typical musician. And we sat down there, and he was going to impress me because I was a determining factor whether he got his job or not. He was going to impress me with all that he knew. He brought me some tapes. He brought me this. He brought me some sound bites. I took him and his wife out to lunch, and we sat down around there, and he was telling me all that he'd done and how many cantatis that he put together and how all this and uh, all the stuff that he went on. And then we were eating down there, you know, and I just listened. I wasn't saying a thing. And he said to me, he said, well, you know what? He said, before I, he said, I've kind of laid out where it is, but he said, I just want you to know, and then you can ask me any question you want. He says, I just want to let you know that as we stand right now, I have memorized 300 songs that I could sing in any church service, any place, any time. Now, Bob, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, I do, just one. Do you know 300 Bible verses? Please. Please, don't insult my intelligence. I know what the book says about the book. I know why you sing. <clears throat> don't tell me you, don't, you have 300 songs you memorized when your inspiration for those 300 songs didn't come in the Word of God and you don't have 300 verses for the inspiration of those 300 songs. Please, don't tell me that. Please. And why are you mad at me now? <laughs> why is big tears running down your wife's cheeks? Hey, that's why some of you love me. That's why some of you hate me. It's either black and white with me. Either the book is what it is or it isn't. Why should I make life more complicated than the devil tries to make it? It's real simple. It's real simple. Well, chapter 17. In chapter 17, a great chapter on David's heart and attitude on building God's house. You see all what we're getting here? How this thing is building up to the last chapters? In chapter 17, verse 1, one of the greatest, most revealing verses in all the Bible as to why David was so much like God. It says this in 17:1. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. You know what? That's a great statement. That statement is so telling about David's heart. You know what it tells me about David? It tells me that every day of his life, David took stock of what he had versus what he gave God. Oh, what a great lesson on that out of heart. But that great lesson is don't give more to yourself than you give to God. At least keep it equal. We get so, we get so caught up on what pleases us instead of focusing on what pleases God. I've talked about it a hundred thousand times. I call it God consciousness. David was always thinking of God. He's sitting down there in his house. He's sitting down there as the king. He's sitting down with all that he's got. And he's not thinking about all that he's got, how great he is. He's thinking about what God don't have. I'll tell you what, if you can develop your attitude of heart, if I can develop my attitude of heart, that in my life with all that we have and that all that God has given us and all that we have is material possessions and the job that God's given us and the family, if I can just come to the place in my life that when I sit down at the end of the day, God and I at least come out even. 
He's sitting there in the midst of the kingdom, the greatest king at that time the world has ever seen. And he's more worried about what God doesn't have than what he's got. Oh, what a great principle. Chapter 18, 19, and 20. David's great victories as he subdues the final nations that are occupying the land. Chapter 21. We talked about this Thursday night. Another great principle. David numbering the people. And I showed you how that uh, it, it's a great principle that shows you over in 2 Samuel 24.1, the Bible says that David did it. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, the Bible says Satan did it. And I've already told you that the reason why David's name is omitted in these is because Dave, God doesn't focus on any of the sins that he did. But there's another great principle here, and that principle is that the devil's always behind the scene getting you to do the wrong thing at the right time. In this chapter, we also see the great Bible definition of sacrifice. Chapter 21, verse 17 through 27. We see that the fact that the ark comes back, David, he wants to make a sacrifice. He goes down to Ornan, who has a threshing floor. And by the way, that's the exact spot where the temple was built and will be built on Onan's threshing floor. Threshing floor, key, second coming of Christ, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, and about 5,000 other places in the Bible. 2 Samuel 24, 24, he comes down there and he says, Onan, he says, I want to, I want to, I want this threshing floor. I want to build an altar. We want to give glory to God. And Onan says, go ahead, David, take it. And he says, now while you're at it, take the bulls to offer. David says, and the king said unto Onan, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Full price, it says. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, that which not cost me nothing. Oh, the great principle. Oh, that Bible teaches you about tithe. Tithe is where you start. But in the process of growing, in the process of learning, in the process of understanding what God has done for you, you realize that that is so inadequate. And you give God, you give God over and above that. And then as you grow, we're going to see it in just a minute. Stay with me. I'm going to gloss over it now, but don't wipe your brow. I'm coming back, and I'm going to put it to you in just a minute. Oh, we see offering. But oh, here we get a definition of sacrifice. A definition of sacrifice. And we see that a sacrifice, a true sacrifice, is something that we give to God that costs us something. How impossible in a world that we live in, in Christianity... We are God's people who just give to God because of His convenience. We give to God out of our abundance. Now you know me. I never preach on giving. I'll mention it when it comes up in an opportune opportunity in the text, but I'll never preach you. There'll never be a commitment card passed out on this church. I'll never, I'll never call you on the phone and say to you, hey, uh, have you turned in your, 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 your pledge? There won't be any pledge cards. I don't want a visitor in this church to ever give a dime. I want the burden fully to rest on your shoulders, my shoulders, men and women who say, this is my church, this is where I get fed, this is where God takes care of me, and this is where I'll take care of Him. God's people, we live in a world in day and age today that we just don't understand. We, don't, we, 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 all, we want all that we can have. We want, we're so selfish in everything that we have. 
I've been in churches where if the preacher talked about money one time, they got up mad. That's not why I don't preach about it. Bottom line is, I could care less if you give or you don't. You think that the lights in heaven are going to go out because God can't pay his electric bill because you want to chisel God? Giving isn't for your God's benefit. It's for your benefit. I could care less. I'll never preach a message on it. I'll never direct anything saying, you know what? We don't have enough money to pay the rent. We'll close the doors. I'm not going to bear that burden. But I've been in churches where no matter where the guy starts, somebody gets mad and gets their nose bent at a joint. I've never understood that. I promise you, if my wife and I came over to you and I said, we really appreciate you being in our church. John, Stephanie, we love you. We want you to go to dinner with us. And bring mom back there with you because I love her too. Where do you want to go? No, no, no. We're going to take you down to the Hereford house because we love you. We're going to pick you up. <clears throat> my wife and I drive over and pick us up, pick you up. We go to the Hereford house. <clears throat> we sit down. We talk about the Word of God. We laugh. We're happy about the church. I tell you how you're growing. We all three of us. Hey, I'm talking to you. Pay attention to me up here, Mom. I'm putting you in this story too. <laughs> We're having fun together. We spend almost an hour. And my wife says, honey, it's getting late. And I said, yeah, it is. We better get going. And I say to Stephanie, Stephanie, would you accompany my wife? And Mom, would you go to my wife for the restroom? Just go to the ladies' room with my wife. She'll explain to you. Yeah, sure. You go into the restroom. You get into the restroom. My wife says, well, isn't it fun tonight? Now, here. Here's what Robert wants you to do. One at a time, let's go out the thing, right around and out the door, and we'll meet at the car. <laughs> yeah, Stephanie, look at you. Look at Mom back there. Now, while that conversation on me and John having a man-to-man, John, I'm saying, God bless you, John. I love you, brother. <clears throat> but John, the dinner pockets are empty tonight. <laughs> John, here's what I want you to do. You go to the men's room, and then stay in there for a minute or two, and then slip out and meet my wife at the parking lot. <clears throat> I'm going to go over here, walk around here like I know some people, and I'm going to cut around the other way, and I'll meet you guys at the car. So we all do that, because you don't know what's going on. You do it. But on the way home, you're saying to yourself, all three of you, can you believe he did that? Can you believe we did that? That guy took us out to dinner, told us to go to the restroom and sneak out, meet at the car. He snuck out, never paid. We had the best meal we've had in the last six months, and we walked out without paying a tab. Now, would you think much of me as a preacher if I did that? Mom, you still would? <laughs> I wouldn't either. But you know what? And I'm done. God's people come to churches all across the city. Pastor spends hours a week getting food ready for them to feed them. And every Sunday after they get what's fed, they walk out without paying a tab. Where it's at. I'm done with it. I don't care one way or the other. I really don't. I'm just telling you this. No, I'll tell you that in just a minute.
He says, a sacrifice has to cost me something. I'm not going to give it for nothing. I'm not going to take your land and your bulls. No, I'll pay full price for it because if I've learned anything in my life, David said, I learned for me to sacrifice for God, it's going to cost me. Because, brother, the sacrifice that God made for you, it cost him. Chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. Those great chapters, oh, wish we had time today. David gathers all the materials and makes all the preparation for his son Solomon to build the house of God. Great lesson here. You know what? David wanted to build it. He was willing to build it. But God said, no, David, you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. You ever been in a situation where you wanted to do something, <clears throat> but God didn't let you do it, but let somebody else do it? You know, if you've not got the right attitude or heart about that thing, that can sour you. I've known people who never went back to church again because they wanted to do something so bad when God gave it to somebody else to do or the preacher gave it to somebody else to do that because they were so immature, so shallow, because they were so full of self that they just got mad and never went back. Here's a great example. David wanted to build the house of God, but God said no. So David was con content to gather all the material, to prepare all the people, to pay all the cost, but let somebody else take all the credit. Pure motive. David did the work to give God the glory. We do the work, so we'll get the glory. Maturity. Now that's what this book is so great. This book shows you almost chapter by chapter the great principles that show you and bring to mind your attitude of heart and the character of Christ through the character of David. Then lastly, in a lot of ways, everything I've said up to this point was my introduction. But I'll try to be brief. But lastly, chapter 28, chapter 29. <clears throat> up to this point, you have seen everything laid out. You've sealed a building process revealing to us the character and the nature of David. Who in reality is the character and nature of God and Christ. And now... Chapter 28 and 20 to 29. David's charge to his son Solomon about building God's house. And as far as I know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know of any other place in the Bible that will change your life as a Christian. There may be some places in the Bible that will change your life as far as seeing the Bible. There may be some places in the Bible that will change your life as far as the overall view of the Bible. But as far as your Christian walk and relationship with God and getting to the point in your life where I think you all want to be, but few people ever get, I don't know of any place in the Bible that will change your life when you fully understand it. Now, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I fully understand maybe some of you won't get it today. Maybe some of you aren't there yet. I understand. Spiritual maturity takes a while. Maybe you're not ready to get it yet. But I'm going to say this to you. If you ever get your life changed with you and God, and you ever get the spiritual maturity in your life, and I'm going to define it for you in no uncertain terms. If you ever get to that, I'm going to show you the process. I'm going to show you the... They say when you drown, your life flashes before you. Well, you're going to drown in the Word of God this morning, and your life is going to flash before you. I'm going to show you the progression after what we've seen 
detailed out about the character of Christ through the life of David, now you're going to see what it takes in your life to get to that place where you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. And if there's ever be a place where your life will be changed, it will be here. And if it isn't here, it's the wrong place. And I look at the change very carefully because I don't know any other place. I don't know any other place. I know this. Every teaching in the rest of the Bible on my relationship with God and Christ and how to build it and how to, how to, how to reach those goals of my Christian life are found in these two chapters. There are 10,000 sermons in these two chapters. There's so much material that I'm so stupid. There's so much material and I'm so inadequate that when I look at it, and I've tried to digest this thing over the years, but I'll tell you what, there's one thing that I learned about this out of this chapter. I talked to you a little while back about your personal relationship with Christ. And I talked to you about how that I look at the Word of God like God wrote it to me, not to you. And some of you just thought, well, Bob, just being cute. I told you one time that when I believe that died, Christ died on the cross, He didn't die for you, He died for me. And I don't mean that He didn't die for everybody, I'm talking about a personal relationship with God that it is you and Him and nobody else as far as the world's concerned. Concerned because sometimes in your life that's what it comes down to, just you and him. But I'm telling you, you know where I got that? I got it from right here in these two chapters. You'll see it. You'll see it. You'll see it. And I, and I have to break this thing down into four components. And I break these things four down in my own personal relationship with God. And the first thing is, I have to define what my, what my relationship with God really is. And there's no two greater verses in the Bible that contain everything that you want. If you would take, if you would, and I, if you would just take these two verses and go to the New Testament, you would run the things, the material in these two verses, you would, you would die of old age before you exhausted everything. Verses 9 and 10 contain it all. Every teaching on my relationship with God is found in these two chapters. And I'm telling you what, in these two verses, there's 400 sermon outlines in, in these two, in the 9 and 10 alone. Here's what he says. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imagination of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever, defining my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, defining what my ministry really is. We have such cockeyed ideas about ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, and not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Let me tell you something. The bottom line of ministry is you getting on with yourself and understanding and defining ministry what it is in your relationship with Christ. We think that ministry is everything in the world. We think, well, my ministry is my bowling league, or my ministry is my job, my ministry and that. Bottom line is your ministry is your own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ around that book, around God's local church. When he says down through there, here's the things that he covers. He talks about getting to know God. He talks about getting to know God the right way. He talks about serving God. He talks about serving God with a right heart. In these two verses, you find serving God with a willing heart. 
And these two verses you find about the fact that God knows uh, the knowledge of my inner thoughts and my inner being and the way I really am. And that's what brings you back to the honesty of understanding that you don't think yourself more than you are. That you keep yourself defining your relationship with, with God. And you understand that your ministry is what God in your heart between you and Him. As the Bible says in about the church of Antioch, they minister to the Lord first and find out what that means. God's knowledge of my inner thoughts. What God does, then it talks about what God does for you if you seek Him. Then it talks about what God does for you if you don't seek Him. He gives you admonishments to be careful and diligent. He tells you how to respond when God calls you to do something. And He tells you exactly what to do when God calls you. Every aspect of your life. You can take those two verses, and by those two verses, you define what your relationship with God is. You can take those passages, and you can go to the New Testament and spend the rest of your life detailing those concepts out, getting to know God, but getting to know Him the right way, serving Him, serving Him right, serving Him willingly, knowing that God knows every thought and the things that we pretend while we're serving God, but we go what going on on the inside is so stupid. And we know what God does for a man when he seeks him. We know what God does when he doesn't seek him. And we know why the admonishments to be diligent and careful in the things that God has given you. And you learn how to respond properly when God calls you. And when you do respond, then God teaches you what to do when he calls you and teaches you how to do it. Defining. Defining. Defining what my relationship with God really is. And yet, the second thing. Once I define what my relationship with is from the Bible, then I've got to build my relationship. Oh, look at verse 19 and 20. Oh, it's incredible. All this, said David, the Lord made me to understand in writing by His hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. And David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and of a good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. My goodness, we could stay here the rest of our lives. He says, first of all, and this said David, the Lord made me to understand. Let me tell you something. The first thing you better get is once you define what your relationship with God is, once you see that it's personal, once you see that God knows the very thoughts and intents of your heart, there ain't nothing you hide from Him. And you lay that thing out and your ministry becomes open and it becomes honest and you begin to see the things that God loves and you know the things that God wants and you begin to make your life in order where you give God what He wants instead of just what you want. And you realize that God, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, that His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And you realize that God, in spite of the fact that we are a sinner and He's holy, God makes me to understand. Because God has a job for me. God had a job for Solomon. God had a job for David. And God took him when nobody else wanted him. And God took him. And God says, I'll make you to understand. How are you going to do it, God? I want to do what's right. I want to serve you. I'm I'm glad you saved me. How are you going to make me to understand? Look at it. In writing. In writing. God wrote you a book. God wrote you a book. David had the word of God in his heart and his mind so much that he knew what God was going to do before God ever did it. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 that we have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 
That's what I'm talking about when I talk about in John chapter 21, verse 25, that many of the things that Jesus said and did, that if all were written down, the world itself couldn't contain all the book. God handpicked what he wanted and wrote it in a book. And when God wants to define ministry and your relationship, he does it through a book. And when God wants to build that relationship, he'll do it through a book. Then look at it. He wrote a book in writing, in writing, in writing, by his hand upon me. Holy Spirit of God. You'll never get a thing from that book unless God's hand isn't on you. Let me tell you something. You can study that book. You can labor that book. You can go to every seminary, every college, every Bible's place in the whole wide world. And if God's Holy Spirit doesn't touch you and put His hand on you and open up your understanding, as the Bible says in Luke chapter 24, you're not going to learn anything. You define what the relationship is. And then you build it through a book with God's hand upon you. How? Look at the rest of it. All the works. Of his pattern. God put that Bible together in a pattern form. You learn the pattern. And God is the pattern. You learn the pattern. You learn the book. You don't learn the pattern. You don't learn to be like God. You don't be like the Lord Jesus. You don't get that mind. You get somebody else's mind. Then he says in verse 20. Don't be afraid. Be strong and be a good courage. He says to Solomon. Don't be afraid. The task is large. You've got to build that temple, but be strong and good courage. Let me tell you something. I want to tell you, the task is large. Your job is to build your temple. Be of good courage. Be strong. And do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until he has, look at it, until he has finished all the work for the service of the house of God. God has a service for your temple. He saved you. He made your body his temple. And he wants to serve through that temple. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He has begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. David said to Solomon, it's a great task. It's a great work. How do you start, Daddy? How do you do it? You define the relationship first. Then you build the relationship through a book. Let me tell you something. That's what's wrong with God's people today. They haven't defined it. They have no book to build it. So they lose the third aspect found in 29, 1, 2, and 3. And that is your perspective of your relationship. You see, your relationship with God comes before anything. If your relationship with God is wrong, your ministry is wrong. You'll think something you're doing out there is your ministry. You'll lose sight. There is no absolute, there is no ministry whatsoever outside the local church. Anything you can cocked up in your mind that you're doing out there that keeps you away from the house of God or keeps you out doing what you want to do, let me oh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. 29. We saw the defining what the ministry was, how to build that relationship. Now we see the perspective of my relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What know ye not your bodies, the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Here's what he said. Furthermore, David, the king, said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen. You see, there it is. Now let me ask you a question. Was he the only one that God chose? No. No. Well, the Bible's filled with pictures of men that God chose and women that God chose. But as far as David was concerned and Solomon was concerned, he was the only one. Personal relationship. When you get up there and the last thing in there, how I build the relationship, it was the book that God gave him in writing to him. 
Good, I know God wrote it to everybody, but David said, it's mine. And in chapter 29, God used all kinds of people down through the Bible, but he says, you are the only one I chose. Oh, you better get your perspective straight. No wonder you will never serve God the way we need to. No wonder our families will never be the way. No wonder our ministries will never be the way. No wonder the churches aren't the way. It's because we do not have the right perspective. He says, Solomon, my son, whom alone, whom alone God hath chosen is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but of the Lord God. Now I have prepared all that I might for the house of my God, the gold of things, to be made of gold, and the silver of things, and the brass of things, brass and iron of things, of iron and wood, and things of wood, onax stones, and stones to be set, glistening stones, and divers colors, and all manners of precious stones, and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, because I have set mine affection to the house of my God, and I have my own pro uh, proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. Oh, my friend, when you have the right defining of your relationship with God, then you'll build that relationship by the book. And what the book does for you when you build it biblically, it builds you the proper perspective of your relationship. He said in verse 1, whom God alone hath chosen. It's me and him. I thank God for every man and woman that's in this church. I thank you. My, the best friends of my life are in this church. The people that I love more than anybody in this world outside my family are in this church. I mean everything that I could ever hold precious than in this church. But the bottom line, my friend, when it comes down to me and God, I'm sorry, it's me and him. You're on the outside looking in. I can't take you there. And you better not try to take me there. You better understand that it's a personal relationship. He says in verse 1, he was young and he was tender. God wants you to stay young and tender versus smart and educated. God wants you to stay young and tender toward his word. Instead of, he wants you to be teachable, not unteachable. He wants you to take the thing where you realize that when you're young and you're tender, God can build through the book into your life. And then he says this, and I don't know of any greater verse anywhere in the Bible that says what needs to be said today. At the end of verse 1. He says, yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. How dare we as God's people take that temple and do more with it for ourselves than we do for what God wants. You know what Christianity is? In a growing process, it's finding out the things that God loves. Now, I'm a fun guy. You'd have to look a long time to have some, find somebody that enjoys life more than I do. I love doing things. We all love having things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at the end of the day, looking inside you like David when he sat in his house, tallying it up. Please don't tell me you gave more pleasure to yourself today than you did God. Please don't tell me, young person, you drug yourself out last night having the fun at your time of your life and you kept your carcass in bed this morning because you didn't want to take God where he wanted to go. Don't tell me that, please. Tell me you're smarter than that. Tell me you're smarter than that. Tell me your whole life isn't built on what you want, what you want to do, and then when you get to a point in your life when you don't have nothing else to do, you'll give that time to God. Tell me it in that way. Tell me it's about understanding, my friend, and understanding your perspective that God, it's a great work. But your palace is for him, not you. 
Don't tell me you fill your life. I mean, I'm telling you what. There's things that we like to do, and there's things that God likes to do. I don't fight that. Go to a Royals game. Go to a football game. Play golf. Go fishing. Go hunting. Go wherever you want to go. Enjoy life. Get away from it. You have to to keep your perspective. But don't get so caught up that you forget that the palace is not for you. Don't sit there at the end of the week, at the end of the day, and have a stack out past the moon of satisfying yourself and nothing for God. Don't take yourself where you want to go, what you want to do, and put it at the fun things that you want. And don't take God where He wants to go. I'm telling you, we get so out of whack. We get out of whack. Our kids get out of whack. Don't play God's I don't know how many times over the years I've seen a mom, a mom and a dad sit in my office. And, 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 and have lost their kids. Kids don't want to come to church. And, 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 they, and, they, and, and all their life, every time there was something at church, Little League was more important. Soccer was more important. We got, they, they, they trained that kid that the things of your flesh fill you more and, and satisfy the things of God. Don't make any difference. Don't worry about Sunday morning. Don't worry about Bible study. Don't worry about the youth meeting. You go do. Be a good ball player. Be a good soccer player. Be a good basketball player. Be a good this. Be a good that. And then sit in my office when a kid has misvalues now. Can't discern it and have the audacity to say to me, Bob, what's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is you embrace stupidity as if it were a virtue. How can you take a young man or a young lady and tell him ball is more important than church. Athletics is more important. School is more important. This is more important. Everything else is more important. Go fill your flesh with all that you want and then just give God what's left over. I'm telling you, you better get it. The palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Oh, you talk about bad perspectives. You talk about why we lose our families, lose our marriages, lose our kids. Well, we train them all lives that everything else is important except God. And when we got time left, we'll go to church. Don't worry about it, son. Don't worry about it, sweetheart. You got a swimming meet. You be at the swimming meet instead of being at Bible study. I'm telling you what. You can do whatever you want. It's your call. But don't kid me that you got perspective on your relationship. Because I got me a Bible that defines my relationship. And I got a book that builds my relationship. And I got a book that tells me that in this old world, God saved me for a purpose. God saved me for a reason. And that reason is to understand one great thing. And if it's the only thing you understand all your life, get it, grab it, and take it home. Young man, young lady, mom and dad, the palace is not for you. It's for Him. How dare we? Build into our lives what we want and leave the scraps for God. I dare to say that when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be God's people 
that had more relationship with their dogs, cats, birds, fish than they had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, help us today. He says in verse 2, Now have I prepared with all my might for the house of my God. Really? Have you? Have I? Oh, that seems such like a silly statement in the midst of my life. Prepared with all of my might. Oh, my God, help us to see today. Oh, what it takes. Oh, help us to see the perspective of a relationship. Oh, this great book lays out the character and the life and the heart of David and then brings home the whole concept that when he gave his son the charge to build that temple, he said, son, define the relationship. Son, build the relationship. And then, son, the perspective. It isn't yours, it's God's. Then he says down in verse 2, look at it, gold, silver, precious stones. How could you miss the parallel to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the judgment seat of Christ? He says, moreover, because I have set mine affections to the house of the Lord. You know what? I watch baseball coaches. I watch them get out there and they tell their players, nobody on this team is going to play unless you give me, I don't want 100%, I don't want 80%, I don't want 90%, I want 200% out of you. And everybody just stands up and says, I'll give you 200%, coach. I watch football.